This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Before I before we open God's Word, though, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd just like to reflect on the fact that really us being sent out is really... Uh, a culmination of us being a part of this local church. And so, as Scott said, we've been involved in church planting in the past um, that was supported by this church. Uh, The last church plant we were involved with didn't work out the way we had intended it for it to work out, so we came back here to regroup, to get it really uh, plugged in and equipped and in some ways just lick our wounds. (laughs) And... um, you know, see what Christ had for us next. But while we've been here, really, um, God has used it to equip us to do what was uh, He had for us next here. Um, and a huge part of that is becoming a part of a local church like this. And really, uh, if you think about the what it means to be a part of a local church, you know, a lot of times we don't properly value what we have. But really, being brothers and sisters in Christ who uh, gather together on a daily basis, uh, we don't want to overlook the fact that we are really tied together in Christ with a spiritual union, a spiritual reality that I don't think even now we really comprehend at its deepest level. And yet, uh, you can't get sent out by a local church unless you are a part of a local church, and you can't be loved while you're out there unless you know the people. And so um, this local church has really been that for us, uh, really in all of our married lives. This is the, we've been at this local church the longest, believe it or not. I know we've only been here for actually just over eight years. Um, But it's been really amazing to be here. Um, You know, I don't just say that, it's been amazing. But when we, when we got ready to move here, people drove down and actually helped us haul our stuff up here. Um, when I moved here, um, I really had no local work in construction. Uh, and yeah, a lot of you guys hired me. Um, you know, some of you just anonymously dropped uh, cash in our mailbox. And it could have been an angel, but I'm not sure. If it was you, don't tell me. <laughs> so... Um, you know, I've been your I've been your pastor for a couple years, um, and one thing that's been really one of the most amazing things that's happened while I'm here is um, five of my kids have been raised from the dead spiritually while we've been attending here, and and so I want to my heartfelt thanks because I know that um, that's more than just because we're such great parents. <laughs> it's really through the Sunday schools and the youth ministries and all. And the preaching of the gospel on Sunday mornings, uh, God has used that to really uh, to save my kids and to really, uh, what better way to equip you to go do ministry than to have your family blessed and your children saved. So I don't uh, overlook any of those things lightly. Um, you know, I became a pastor here a couple years ago uh, kind of ironic, I came onto the eldership 
and the other elders welcomed me into the fold. Um, I can say this lightly, but most of those guys are a few years older than me, <laughs> so they've been around the block, and yet <coughs> um, they welcomed me into the fold. Uh, they heard my voice. They uh, really um, made sure that I was one of their fellow elders. Ironically, if I was going to get experience on an eldership, I wouldn't have chosen the year of COVID or the two years of COVID. But really, um, <coughs> excuse me, if you can think about getting ministry experience in one of the hardest times um, and most challenging times where you're probably going to learn a lot about uh, what it means to attempt to be a pastor, then I guess I got those couple years here. And so I'm, I'm very thankful for that. But one thing I'm most thankful for is uh, for Pastor Tony and other elders. Um, you know, we've been around a lot of different churches. Um, but one thing I can say here is elders here are not about their own kingdom. You know, I've been in a lot of places where it's about, uh, you know, let's build our own kingdom here. Uh, Pastor Tony has gotten behind us and other elders and really encouraged us to go out. Um, you know, we could look at this as, oh, we're, we're losing uh, part of, you know, a pastor and, you know, what, what are we going to do? Or we could look at this as, you know what, Christ's kingdom is bigger, it's greater. What he is doing is the most important thing in the world. And thank God that's how our elders look at this. And so as I think about this church, um, while we're sad on the one hand, uh, we're excited to partner with you. Uh, I want you to realize that we really uh, would not, seriously would not be able to do this without a local church. Um, be, with uh, prayer support, financial support, it just wouldn't be possible. I would, I'm already getting a little burnt out, but thank God that the elders in the church are coming alongside us to actually make this possible. Um, with the, that, I, as I think about this church, um, the scriptures, Philippians 1-3 comes to mind. Where Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Let's pray and then we'll open God's word. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we ask for you to be with us now to honor yourself. Lord, that we would Lord, uh, know that you love us. Lord, that we would know that you are for us. Lord, that we would know that your grace is always at hand, Lord, to bless us and strengthen us in so many ways. Lord, I pray that you would be faithful to your word, faithful to your cause in the world, Lord, this morning and that you would reveal yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
this morning above everything else as my brothers and sisters in Christ I would like to encourage you uh, to excel still more as you pursue God's plan of redemption and your part in that this morning and above all else that you would have confidence in God and what he is doing in the world and as we consider the title of our message God's eternal love for his people uh, the foundation of the mission of the church what I'd like us to consider this morning is that missions doesn't exist because it's something that man attempts missions exists because it's something that God is doing and what God is doing is that from eternity past God has determined to share himself with sinners from eternity past missions really flows out of God's heart God's love it's God's decision it's something in his heart it's his love that moves him to share himself with others not because he needs us but because it comes from his very heart his very desire to give himself to us as we consider missions I'd like us just to consider briefly Ephesians 1 right 3 4 and 5 where does my mission start mission starts with God's determination uh, to love people now what does Ephesians 1 say verse 3 we've been blessed in Christ Jesus with all the spiritual blessings and he says in verse 4 that we were chosen God chose us in Christ before he created the world and so the foundation of mission starts before we existed in the choice of God and yet God's choice to save particular individuals is uh, the best illustration I can think of it's not a cold decision right it's not like um, I've never done this before but I saw my dad do it on occasion if you ever cook dry beans you got to be careful because sometimes there's a rock the size of a bean that's mixed in there and you have to sort them out. And my dad broke his tooth on one. That's why he was sorting them out. But it's, God's election is not a cold decision of sorting beans. It's not like I throw the rocks out and I keep the other good ones. When God chooses us, it is a determination that he had to set his affections on us. And so that's why at the end of verse 4 he says, in love... He predestined us to adoption into his family. Paul can say in Colossians 3.12, he says, he reminds the Colossians, he says, you are God's chosen ones. And what does that mean? You are holy and you're the beloved of God. You're the beloved. That's what it means. In Romans 8.29, we know Romans 8.28, right? God causes all things to work together for good for those right to those who love God but how do we get clear to the end where we are all everything's going to work out to good and we're going to be glorified it began back with God's foreknowing us and what does that mean to know brings the Old Testament imagery of an intimate loving committed relationship that's what it means and so God he did this beforehand he was committed beforehand to love us that's why all things work together for good if you'll turn over with me to john 17 i would like to just further 
give some biblical basis for this. John 17, verse 3. If God's mission is to save us and give us eternal life and to give eternal life to all the peoples of the world, what does that mean? And where does it start? John 17, verse 3. Jesus says that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus says, if you want to have life at its fullest, eternal life at its best, life that never ends, What is that? How can I describe that best? I can describe that best is knowing who God is. And yet as Jesus goes down, knowing who God is is not just knowing a lot of details about God's character, but it's above everything else knowing one thing about God, knowing that He is committed to doing what is best for you, committed to loving you. And so in John 17, verse 6, Jesus said that when he came, he did one thing for a special group of people. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. So Jesus says there was a group of people that the Father gave to the Son, and Jesus says, I have made known, I have manifested your name. What is God's name? That is who he is. That is his character or his glory. And really it's building on that idea. What is eternal life? Is to know God. And how do we know God? We know God through Jesus. Because Jesus came to reveal who God was. And what was the point? Just that we would know a lot of knowledge about God. If you look down, you can read this whole chapter at some time. But if you look down at verse 26, the end of knowing who God is is knowing that all that God is, He puts that at our disposal to do what is best for us because He loves us. The ultimate peak of knowing God is knowing that He is committed to you, to loving you. And so, in verse 26, Jesus says, I made known to them your name. Right? These, this special group of people. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. And what is the end of Jesus revealing who God is to us? What is the purpose or the result of this? Where is it all leading? What is the pinnacle? What is the high point of knowing who God is? He says, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus says, the result, the end, the pinnacle, the most important thing is that in the revealing of God, that God's very love would be in us. And that even Jesus would be in us. And what kind of a love is it? He says it's the same kind, the same quality of love that the Father loved the Son with. And so as we think about missions today, we need to realize that missions exist because God is a God who has, from eternity past, chosen to set His affections on people from all the peoples of the world. 
And so when we read Genesis 1.26, the original creation, we need to read it in this context. Right? When Genesis 1.26, where God said, Let us make man in our image and let them have dominion over the earth. What does it mean that God made us in His image? Well, very simply, it means that He made us like Him. Or you could say, go a little bit further, God shared some of His character with us. Or you could go a little further and you could say that God shared Himself with us, some of His very glory with us. And then you could go a little further, you could say that God determined to love human beings before they existed. And with that love, He gave us something to do, right? To have dominion over, over all the earth. To have a, a kingly duty, something to do, which we'll talk about more later. Now, you might be here today, though, and you might be asking yourself, you know, I don't really value knowing God. I don't know why that would be so great. Um, why is knowing God so great? Uh, why is that the essence of eternal life? Like life at its best forever. Why is that the essence of eternal life? Uh, why would I want to be with God forever? Uh, well, in short, God is everything that we could ever want or need. In short, um, who is God? Who is our God? Our God is not a territorial deity, right? He's not a, you know, a God that if you're in a particular uh, place, you know, if you're in his territory, you make sure that you're worshiping him. But if you go somewhere else, you make sure you worship that God because you're out of his territory. No, our God, as revealed in the scriptures, is a God who created the whole world and everything in it. Our God is a God who from his very being spoke the whole universe into existence. Everything we have is from God. And since God made everything, that means that our God is unlimited by anything in all creation. And why is that so great? Because if that God is for you, it doesn't matter what any other being in the universe does. If that God decides to set his affections on you, then no matter what, you're going to be okay. Our God <clears throat> is all-powerful. He controls everything. He's not created. He's unlimitable. You can't limit Him by anything else in the universe because He spoke it all into existence. He knows everything. He always knows what's best. He always knows the most wisest thing to do. And He has all the, all the power ultimate power at his disposal and he's also good and loving it is this god who is not just he doesn't just desire to be worshiped from a distance though right god you know i found out that it's actually possible I, because a lot of times we study god's attributes and we study god's glory and we're trying to express god's glory and his character and how amazing it is to know god I found out through practice that in trying to actually find more about God by listening to books on the attributes of God that you can actually fall asleep trying to learn more about who God is. And so uh, hopefully you're not doing that already. But who is God? God is not just a list of attributes. The knowledge about who God is and his unlimited character is very important. But God, from the beginning, wants human beings to know that he is a God who wants to share himself with us. 
He's a personal God. And so God doesn't just give us a list of attributes in the Bible. He communicates to us in relational terms so that we can properly uh, understand what it's like to have Him as our God. And one of the big things that how He communicates and describes Himself is that He is our Heavenly Father. God is like a Father to us. As I think about God in all of His unlimitable power and knowledge and all these th characteristics that He is, what does that mean for me? What it means for me is that He desires to be my Father. What is a father? Right? There's a reason why we have fathers. And the ultimate reason is so we could understand how amazing God is. Uh, what is a father? You know, what's, I haven't met anyone yet. Maybe someone will uh, come up here. I haven't met anyone yet who, as a young child, didn't love to be with their dad. Or if their dad wasn't around, didn't want to be with their dad, right? It's like the, um, just came to mind, right, the joke, like, where's your dad at? Oh, he's out, you know, getting groceries or something. Why is your dad never here? Everybody, right, everybody wants a dad around. And we don't want just any dad around. We want a dad around who no matter what will make things turn out okay. Deep down, within our nature as human beings, we're made to want to be with someone who's bigger and stronger and has all the power to make everything turn out okay. Now, I can remember some great times with my dad. I remember, uh, thank God, sitting in church. And my best memory of being with my dad in church is uh, kind of just laying on his shoulder like this. And the best part about it, he was kind of scratching my back, and I fell asleep. And that was the best thing. I was just like, this is great, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I woke up when the service was over. But it was just that time where I could, I he just held me right there, you know. Now, there was other times in church where he reached around and thumped me on the head because we were cutting up. But uh, that, I just remember those times where I was like, he loves me. He has nothing else to do but just hold me here and show me his affection. And, uh, you know, I can also remember times being with him where there was something scary going on. And one thing I knew is I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm just going to let my dad take care of this situation. <laughs> I'm just going to stand back out of the way. And yet, uh, right, uh, what happens to our earthly dads? Eventually they die, Right. They pass away. My dad passed away four years ago. Uh, and when it first happened, I was like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Um, but I can honestly say now that it's actually a good thing that our dads don't live forever, right? Because our dads aren't the end, right? What we're supposed to see, right? And what the soul desires is someone who loves us, who has all the power that exists at his disposal, who cares about us, and he's going to do what's best for us, and no matter what, he's going to make everything turn out okay. Isn't that what we want as human beings? We want to know that someone cares about us, is going to make everything turn out right for us. If we think about James 1, 16 through 17, we see this truth, right? Because this is not how everybody thinks about God, unfortunately. Um, James tells us, Do not be deceived. 
my beloved brothers, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What James wants us to understand is everything good we have, right, doesn't come from an earthly parent, right? Uh, earthly dads, we get annoyed if we get pushed too hard by our kids, especially if they don't respect us when we think we gave them everything they have, right? That's what probably bothers us the most. It's like, you don't realize how much hard work I put into giving you this, and you just destroyed it. Like, really? What's wrong with you? He says, with God, he's not like an earthly father. With him, there's no variation or shifting shadow. He's not going to snap. He's not going to get irritated. His love for his people remains unchanging. And everything good that we have comes from Him. Now the world does not accept this, right? And why don't they accept it? They don't accept it because of an event that happened in the past, the fall, the rebellion of man. And at the essence of what it meant for us to rebel against God is that we lost the knowledge of who God really is. Right? We lost the knowledge that God is from his very heart, desires to share himself with us, desires to give us what is best for us, which is actually himself. If you think back to the original temptation, right, that was uh, the serpent's uh, motive, to call into question God's genuine concern for them, right? To call it into question. Did God really say that? Oh, he said that? Well, is that really going to happen? Can you really believe him? Can you really trust him? Really, the temptation was to doubt God's faithfulness, his desire to do what is best for us. And yet God's love for all the peoples of the world has never changed. Right? His love has never changed. We can see this in many passages in the Old Testament, uh, really beginning very clear, clearly, Genesis 12, verse 3, right? In Adam, or excuse me, in Abraham, all the families of earth would be blessed. Uh, and then in the revelation of God to Moses, right? There was only one person who saw God, at least God's back, and walked away. But what's amazing is when God revealed his character, right? What is the first thing he said? What is the. Because the first thing God says if he's revealing his name is most likely the most important thing that his hearers need to know. And what is the first thing that God said to Moses? He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, and sins. That is the first thing, the most important thing that God wants us to know. Now, of course, there's more details, right? He by no means will let the guilty go unpunished. That is an important detail as well, but that is not the first thing that God says when he communicates who he is. As we move to the New Testament with Jesus, we see that Jesus came to reveal who God is to us. We've already seen that from John 17, but to dig into that just a little deeper, right? 
John 1 says, in, in the beginning was the Word, was the Son of God, and He was with the Father. But down in verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Apostle John says, And we saw His glory. And what was His glory like? His glory was first full of grace as well as truth. And it's not a mistake, right, that we have John 3.16 in the Bible. Let's not overlook it, right? What was the reason that the Father sent the Son? Why did He give the Son? Is because He loved the world. For God so loved the world, He gave His Son. Another verse would be John 13.1. There, John says, really at this point in the Gospel of John, where Jesus sets His face to go to the cross, it says that He loved His own to the end. What did Jesus seek to accomplish? For a particular group of people, his own. Remember John 17, the ones that the Father has given to the Son. Here, what does it say that Jesus came to do? To love them a little bit? It says, no, to love them to the end. To do everything necessary to make sure he brought about life eternal for them. Let's look also over at 2 Corinthians, if you'll turn with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. There is still a problem, though. Because not everybody appreciates God. Not everybody appreciates their Heavenly Father. And really to be lost, to not have eternal life, is to not know God, which is to not appreciate Him. And there are a lot of people in the world like this. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 tells us a little bit of tidbit of information on why this is. It says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What I'd like to see from this passage just mainly is what's our duty as Christians? Our duty as Christians to make all truth about God known. But as Christians, there is one truth that we must realize that the world denies, that the lost do not properly understand. And what is that truth? What are they blinded to? He says the light of the gospel, right? It's the gospel, which is of or the glory of Christ. So it has to do with Christ's glory and what is, who is Christ. He is the image or the revelation of who God is. But to just look at that word or that phrase, the light of the gospel. Simply, and I did this, if you just look up the word gospel in any Greek dictionary, you're going to come up with the definition good news. And so... As Christians, 
What is, what are the lost missing? They're missing the reality that there is good news in the gospel. Right? They're not necessarily, the key ingredient that's missing is not necessarily that God is the judge. The whole world lives according to certain standards. Right? They have the law written on their heart. And yet, Paul says here that if our gospel is veiled, if people are not accepting the truth about God, why is it that they're not accepting it? It's because their eyes are blinded to the light of the good news that they can see in Jesus Christ. And what is that good news above all else? Is that the Father desires to love them and share Himself with them. That is the news that they're missing. But they're not just missing uh, facts, right? They're not just missing, missing a fact, uh, right? A, a lost person can say, yeah, I know that the Bible teaches that God loves sinners. Okay, I know that. What they're missing, though, is what they're missing really the ability to accurately assess it, to realize how valuable knowing God is to realize how important and how amazing it would be to be loved by the unlimitable God of the universe. Right, that's what Apostle Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 2:14, right, that the things about God are they're not able to be known by natural people who do not have the spirit of God. Why? Because he says they are spiritually appraised. And when he says they are spiritually praised or spiritually discerned, really the word is about making a judgment, determining whether something is really valuable or not or worth having. And I believe that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. It's not that they don't know facts, but they don't know how amazing it is to know God. Thank God for those of us who know Him what happened to us? God revealed His love for us. Above everything else, we didn't just know that God was our judge. We saw that in Jesus we could be forgiven, that we could be in God's family. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, if you just move down a couple verses, Paul says, something happened to us. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Something happened to us. Why, do we, why are we able to discern how valuable Christ is? Because God, the very God who created the whole universe, who spoke light into existence, did something in our hearts, revealed really how beautiful God is, how valuable He is. And how did He do that? He did it in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, as we talk about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the image of God. Uh, and when Jesus said to have eternal life, he didn't say it was just knowing the Father. What did he say? Eternal life is to know God, who is the unlimitable Father, who wants to love you and put all of his power and glory at really your disposal to do what is best for you. But he also said, it's not just to know you, it's to also know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so to try to 
really give us a bigger picture of the glory of Christ? What does it mean that, he, that we see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ? How are we to think of Jesus Christ? Right? We don't think of Jesus Christ as just a bunch of facts. We're to think of Jesus Christ as a champion, as a savior. And well, what do I mean by that? When we think of, of the glory of Christ, uh, I, just like being a little child or even an adult, right, and wanting to have a perfect father, there's another thing that human beings want. Human beings want to be on a team with a champion, right? I can remember when I was in grade school, it was first through fifth grade, and there was a kid there who grew up taller than all the rest of us. And so we would go out in the field, and we would play, you know, among other things, soccer, but football. And this kid was way taller he was popular, he was way more athletic, and what you really wanted above all else was to get picked on his team, right? <laughs> you wanted to play on his team, uh, because in our minds, he was a champion, right? Um, and really, in our culture, we worship champions. There's a reason why we worship great athletes, because it's in our DNA to worship champions, to want glory, to want to be a part of something amazing, and how are we to think about Jesus? Jesus is the ultimate champion. He's, he's not going to do something really meaningless like throw touchdown passes or something else that's really meaningless like make three-point shots from half court. That's all meaning. That's, that's the kind of stuff that meaningless champions do. The kind of stuff that our champion does, he comes back from the dead after he's been hung on a cross. That's the kind of thing our champion does. And so... Just like God, we're not to think of him as a bunch of facts. We're to think of him as a father who wants to put all of his power at our disposal. We're to think of Jesus Christ as a champion. Really, that's what the word savior really brings about. A savior who is able and has the power to conquer all of our enemies and to bring us along to glory. And so that's why the apostle Paul would say, right, that Jesus Christ always like a conquering general, he's always leading us in victory. In our very being as creatures, we were created to want to have an all-powerful Father love us and to want to be about a cause that is most glorious. And how are we, how do we become, uh, how, does it, how do we come to be a part of the cause of Christ? What really changes us so that we are able and equipped to be about the cause of Christ among all the nations. If you look down in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, we see that something drastically changed. Something changed the purpose of our life. Something changed how we live and what we live for. says there, for the love of Christ controls us. Christ's love controls us. We have a controlling power in our lives that has changed our purpose and our direction and our motivation and our goals. And it's the love of God that we see in Christ. How does it change us? It says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. 
And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. How do we really, how are we equipped? What equips us to be about God's mission? What equips us is to know God's love in Christ. That's what controls us. That's what changes our motivation from uh, before we knew Christ to being about our own glory, right? Those whispers in your mind really uh, are there that said, oh, make everyone think well about you, right? Uh, maybe I'm the only crazy person out here, but there's, a, there's always a whisper in, uh, that comes from our sin and Satan, right? Uh, it's all about you being great and everyone thinking that you're great. And yet something happened to us as Christians. We know that that's, that's a lie, right? It's not about us being great. It's about us knowing God's love and now living for the one who gave himself for us. As Apostle Paul goes down in the passage, what does this look like, living for him? In verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, is a new creation, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So as as Christians, right, what has happened? God recreated something in us. And what was the recreation, right? He's going back to uh, chapter 4, verse 6. Uh, the recreation was when the God who created light in the beginning recreated something in us. He recreated in us uh, really a desire for the glory of God, an, an ability to appraise and to value the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And as new creation, what are we to do? If we read down the context, he says, And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And then he says this in verse 20. He says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so, as those who know God's love, God's love is what gives us a different direction in our lives. And with that different direction, what are we to do? We're to be ambassadors. We're being to be those who implore the world concerning the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as we wrap it up here, why should the church be concerned about global missions? Why should the church be concerned about all the people groups of the world and the people around us who don't know Jesus? Well, the short answer is, is that God loves them. That's the short answer. God has determined from eternity past to set His saving love on individuals from every people group of the world. We know what God's all about, right? Hopefully this sermon is not too shocking. We know what God's all about. God is all about sharing himself with people from all the people groups of the world. 
You probably know the verse, right? Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, where they're singing to Christ. And why is Christ worthy? It says, You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and every language and every kind of people and every nation and have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. This is God's plan. That's the end of His plan. That's going to happen. And so why should the church broaden its horizons and be involved in global missions? It's because we are ambassadors of God. We have seen His love. We know His plan that he is determined to set his love on all the peoples of the world. And so when we go out, we don't go out saying, I hope that it might be God's plan to save some of those people out there that I've never heard of in that people group. We go out there knowing that God has determined beforehand to love people from every people group of the world. That's really the basis for Jesus sending the disciples out to make disciples of all the nations. The basis of that is that on the cross, he showed that God had determined to save and is going to save people from all the nations. Now, why should we be worried about that? Um, worried in a sense of being faithful to what God has called us to do as a church? Why should we be concerned that this is part of what a local church should be about? Uh, why we should be concerned is um, all those categories, every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, uh, God is determined to save individuals from all those different people groups. And to uh, the best of the abilities of Christians, they've tried to determine how many people groups in the world there are based on those categories. And depending on how you, I realize some of you probably know just as much or possibly more about this than I do. And so there's different ways of factoring this. And if you really want to talk about it more, we can. But that's just for now say that roughly there are over 16,000 people groups in the world. So right, the original plan of God, which is the only plan of God, is to save people from every people group in the world. There's over 16,000 people groups in the world. Uh, and to the best of our knowledge, uh, 7,000 of those people groups would be considered unreached, having 2% Christians living in their people group or less. And 3,000 or about 3,500 of those people groups, uh, to the best of our knowledge, have no one who is a Christian from their people group. And so uh, what that tells us is that the Great Commission is not done, right? The command to go and make uh, disciples from all the nations is not done. There is still work that God is doing, and so we should be committed to do what God is doing. Now, in, as we wrap up the message, I don't want it to be all doom and gloom on people groups of the world. Uh, I was thinking about this a little bit. <clears throat> if you think about it, you're like, man, that's a lot of people groups. And then you start doing the math and you start, you start realizing, wow, um, you know, a good guess would be that of all the total population as a whole in the world, 
only about 11, 11% of the population is actually evangelical Christian. And she could be like, oh man, we're really outnumbered. <laughs> this is, things aren't going according to plan. But, but think about this, right? Where did the Great Commission start? It started with Jesus giving a Great Commission to his 12 disciples. And it started with uh, the largest number that we really read that Jesus appeared to after the resurrection was the 500 in 1 Corinthians 15. But then we get to the upper room in the book of Acts. I don't know where all the 500 went, but then we got 120 there <laughs> right on the day of Pentecost. And so think with me for a moment. Jesus originally gave the Great Commission to a Jewish people right over 2,000 years ago. And at the very largest number of followers, there was 500. And they were all Jewish people at that point. And from that, really the gospel is spread and disciples have been made, if we take 16 minus 7, whatever that is, um, my math's not real good up in front of people. Uh, whatever that is, um, that's 9, right? <laughs> is that 9? So that's 9,000, roughly, just basic math, right? We're not engineering, doing engineering math here. Basic math from the original Jewish disciples, Jewish only, disciples have been made since that time from among oh, around 9,000 people groups of the world. Okay, so that's, that was what Jesus said. Jesus' command was not, go out and convert as many people as you can. He said, no, go make disciples and start churches from all the people groups of the world. And so... Uh, it's really an amazing thing if you really, really stop and think about it, to be a part of what Christ has been doing back with those original Jewish people to uh, what he's doing today. And so thank God that the mission starts with what he's doing and not with what we can do. Let's pray.